Extraordinary districts need extraordinary leaders. How do we get more of them? This is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. We believe all kids can learn to high levels, no matter what their background. In my latest book, Schools That Succeed, I demonstrate how expert school leaders build the systems to marshal the full power of schools to help all students. But even the most powerful school leaders can be undermined by district leaders who don't understand how to support school improvement. To understand what school districts can do to help students achieve, we recently went to three ordinary districts that get extraordinary results for their students. They are the subject of the EdTrust podcast, Extraordinary Districts. One of the districts we went to was Chicago, the third largest district in the country. Chicago has made enormous gains over the last couple of decades, and in my reporting, it appeared that one of the keys to that improvement is the city's efforts to develop and support principals. The conclusion I have drawn from years of observation is that if we want more schools that succeed and more extraordinary districts, we will need more extraordinary school leaders, by which I mean principals who believe in the capacity of students and understand how to structure schools to help their students be successful. The question for me is, how do we get more such principals? Fortunately, there are a lot of smart people out there who have been grappling with just that question, and we have four of them here today for, uh, for our, a special edition of Extraordinary Districts. Michelle Young is the Executive Director of the University Council of Educational Administration, a consortium of higher education institutions committed to advancing the preparation and practice of educational leaders. That is to say, some of the nation's top universities preparing school and district leaders. Michelle will lead the conversation today, and she will be joined by Ann Doherty, who is the director of the Danforth Educational Leadership Program at the University of Washington, Terrence Green, assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the University of Texas, Austin, and Steve Tozer, director and co-founder of the Center for Urban Education Leadership, University of Illinois, Chicago, or UIC. Steve and his program at UIC were featured in the Extraordinary Districts podcast. Thank you all for joining us for this really important conversation. Michelle, take it away. Thanks, Karen. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and I've um, appreciated the extraordinary or extraordinary district series, particularly the way that you've been able to unpack the what as well as the how and why. And we plan to follow your lead today as we dig into the issue of leadership preparation. Um, I love the question that you posed in your introductory remarks just now. How do we get more extraordinary school leaders? And over the last decade, researchers have demonstrated that quality leadership preparation matters. And they've been able to identify key program elephants that contribute to quality. And Anne, Terrence, and Steve, this is where I'd like to start our conversation today. So given what we have learned, and more importantly, given what you know about your program, what do you consider to be key to your program's quality? Terrence, let's begin with your program at UT Austin. What would be the top three elements on your list and why these three? Well, well, first, um, thank you, Karen and Michelle and everyone for, for having me on the podcast. So uh, thinking about our leadership preparation program here at UT Austin, 
and preparing extraordinary school leaders, I think there are a couple of things that are important. One, it's to um, intentionally have uh, curriculum and instruction that's focused on equity and social justice. Uh, for so long, uh, educational leadership preparation programs have, have been all about the technical aspects, and not that the technical aspects are not important, but the technical aspects have to be blended and integrated with the ideas of equity and equality and social justice. So making sure that um, education, educational leadership preparation programs are specifically and intentionally and purposely focused on that is very important. Uh, the second thing is that um, embedded in that, that curriculum and instruction is to have embedded powerful learning experiences. Learning experiences, again, where you do blend the technical of like, we still need you to know how to do a budget. We still need you to know how to do a master schedule. But how do you do that anchored in the idea of equity, anchored in the idea of creating school districts um, that serve the, the, the students that have been most traditionally marginalized and underserved by race, by class, by language, by gender identity, so on and so forth. So that becomes extremely important. And then I think, um, the way that we select and we recruit school leaders is very important too, right? Because you want school leaders who have a propensity to engage in the work around equity and social justice, even if they're not fully there yet and we're all in this process of becoming, we never get there fully, but they, they at least have demonstrated that um, in their current, current work. So I think those elements of what we do here at UT Austin and what we see at programs across the country are, are important for developing extraordinary school leaders. Thanks, Terrence. What about you, Steve? What, what's going on at UIC? What would you put at the top of your list? Well, first of all, I want to support everything that, uh, that Terrence just said, including thanks for including us in, the, in, in this podcast. Um, I do think that part of the centrality of the focus on um, equity um, keeps us constantly thinking about the fact that our schools are not serving all groups of kids well. And yet we know that a really good school leader can uh, dramatically improve the learning outcomes for precisely those kids who are not being served well by public schools. So if we keep our focus on the kid in the school and that kid's need for a strong school leader, I think it can really guide what our programs do. So I'm going to say that one of the things that helps us achieve the kinds of things that that Terrence talked about, and I thoroughly agree with him when he says we're not there yet. None of us are where we need to be in the preparation of school leaders who really can um, significantly um, sort of counter the impact of um, political and economic and ideological conditions that actually put um, low-income kids and kids of color at a significant disadvantage in schools. But one of the things that enables us to make the progress we do is a really close partnership with the school district, with Chicago Public Schools. So one of the things that I would say, if you said, what are the three most important things or five most or one most, I would start with that partnership. And so to, to reframe what I said a moment ago a little bit, the central clientele for us, the clients that we serve are not centrally graduate students who want a credential, but they are centrally kids in public schools who really deserve a good school leader and who deserve strong instruction in the classroom. 
And if we keep focusing on that, that our focus is on the kid in the school, it really affects who we select for the programs, who we recruit for the programs, how we prepare them in the program, and so on. The other thing is that if we focus on the kid in the school, we're focusing on exactly the same thing the school district should be focusing on. And in fact, Chicago Public Schools has elevated its game over the last decade in terms of focusing on the kid in the classroom. So this creates a really strong bond between us and the school district and our collaboration together. The final thing I'll say, and maybe we'll come back to this later, but if we want school districts and universities to work productively together to produce the kinds of principles that our students deserve in public schools, the states have a significant role to play. And I won't go into that now, but I'll say that I think that that, that sort of triad of the state, the district, and higher ed is absolutely critical to get aligned. And if we do that right, we can produce student learning outcomes at scale. That is to say, not just in this district or that district or this school or that school, but we can really do it at scale statewide and ultimately nationwide. Thanks, Steve. I, I really like that notion of focusing on the kid in the school. So Anne, Terrence and Steve have, have emphasized so far this, um, this importance of the partnership of, of focusing in on equity and I know that's a, a key portion of, or a key focus of your program as well and Terrence mentioned something um, called powerful learning experiences um, which I imagine is what Steve is getting at when he's saying you know that by focusing on the kid in the school the things that we're doing in our program have to have to drive towards their success um, can you tell us a little bit um, you know, what would be on your top on your top list? And can you help us maybe unpack some of the ideas that um, that Steve and Terrence have just shared? Sure. Um, thanks so much for uh, again for this opportunity to, to join this conversation. <clears throat> and uh, I always feel that I learn so much anytime I'm with Steve and Terrence. So um, really appreciate this uh, opportunity to talk with you as well. Um, I, I would say um, for the Danforth program, our focus is on uh, recruiting, selecting, and then further developing um, equity-driven, learning-focused, collaborative leaders. And uh, I would, I'm going to emphasize that we, we use those same um, aspects when we look at our own program. And I think that that's one of, the, one of the issues that you're going to see, too, is this idea of um, constant program renewal. Um, you would probably see that in all three of our programs as well. So um, in terms of collaboration, we do collaborate very deeply with our partners. Um, the, when the program was first formed um, just, a, just over 30 years ago, it was formed through a professional uh, development committee that, um, uh, a program development committee that included um, partners from eight different districts and the university um, faculty. And uh, 30, you know, some 25 years later when I joined the program, we had an additional convening in which we brought in um, national thought partners and also our district partners to take a look at our, um, our curriculum and to help us redesign that curriculum through a curriculum council work. So we've had about 17 districts that have worked alongside with us. And, and I feel like we, that modeling of that collaboration um, for our students, it's not just to show that we work together with our partners, but how much we can learn from each other. And as Steve was saying, you know, how much of what we do in schools is really meant to impact um, what's happening, what's needed in, um, in the schools where the, our, our candidates are going out to work. So um, in, in terms of, of taking a, a little bit of time to, 
to dig a little more deeply into um, one of these areas, um, when we talk about our students being equity driven and learning focused and highly collaborative, one of the pieces that they do a powerful learning experience that continues throughout the year is they begin by conducting an equity audit of the um, internship site that they're at and then working with their, uh, with their principal who's their mentor to identify an area of inequity that they can address throughout the course of the, of the program. And they do that in a collaborative fashion. They work with um, families and students and teachers um, to identify this area of inequity and then to really study it, find out what, what are the practices and systems that are holding that inequity in place, and then work together to identify um, you know, next steps and actually put those next steps in place. They implement that, uh, the plan that they, um, that they create and then by the end of the school year, um, they are presenting their work to, um, to members of our field, um, both to demonstrate what they've learned, but then also to inform, um, inform the field about something that they have found that either has worked or hasn't worked to, um, to move uh, student learning at their campus. And they do that through a variety of um, experiences of working with others. So I think that that's, that's an example of a powerful learning experience. It is not short term. It starts in August. It ends, um, actually it doesn't probably end in, uh, at the May um, presentations. Um, oftentimes those projects continue into the following year. But, the, um, but it's the idea that it, it, takes, um, it takes authentic engagement with real problems um, to develop leaders who are able to then move out of a program and get into the next situation, the next context, and be able to authentically engage with problems of practice um, in a collaborative fashion in order, to, um, in order to deliver on that equity that we're expecting for all of our students. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I think that that um, level of specificity was really helpful and um, can kind of helps us get a better sense of, of what these really wonderful preparation experiences actually look like. Terrence, I was wondering if you might be willing to share something similar from the UT program. You know, you, you mentioned that there are these powerful learning experiences that are embedded throughout your program. Can you um, give us an example of one? Yes, so we, um, um, like, like Anne, we, we also have our students conduct uh, an equity audit. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of the work you've done, Michelle and, and Colleen Capper, around really disaggregating data around areas around race and language and ability and gender, which becomes eye-opening for, for, for a lot of our students and the principals that they are working with. So we, we really try to get them to anchor the work that they're doing based off of the inequities that they see according to the data. And so after they do the equity audit, they come up with this three to five year plan of like, how are we going to eliminate these inequities? So it's one thing to identify them, but then like, how do we start to prepare leaders and aspiring school leaders with the skill sets to start to build the capacities of teachers, to start to eliminating low level track courses that are highly racialized, like we know empirically that they are, they're not doing anything for children, right? And so how do you start to have those tough conversations to start to change actual systems and structures and policies in your schools that perpetuate inequity? Because often we'll see leaders, they come into districts and schools with this ideology of equity, but they're in a school system that is, that is predicated on policies and practices and systems of inequity. So like, how do you start to change and shift those? We also have students engage in a community-based equity audit as well, because the equity audit within the school is perfect and fine, but children, they don't live all their lives inside of a school. So like, how do you start to develop authentic 
and, and, and equitable relationships with families and communities in ways that are not self-serving for you as a leader or for a school, but that really embraces what the community is doing, which is, is very important. How do you think about students and families who are, are homeless? How do you think about students and families who are linguistically diverse? Like, what does that community aspect look like? So we have them engage in that, but they also engage in a, a participatory action research project. So they take the data from their equity audit and then it's like, okay, we've got to actually address this problem of practice. So they spend uh, a year in this internship and they, they engage in this participatory action research project where they lead PDs, where they lead PLCs, where they uh, work on changing curriculum, where they change service delivery models. And those become very powerful learning experiences for, for our students because they're actually leading these efforts in their schools, sometimes alongside of their principal, but sometimes they're actually um, leading it and, and their principal's learning from them. So they've been very powerful. Wonderful. So Steve, we've had two really, I think, powerful ex um, examples of the curriculum and um, pedagogy that's focused in around the kids in the school. And I'm wondering if you would share one uh, example from the UIC program as well. Yeah, I want to pick up on a couple of themes there, Michelle, um, that, that uh, my colleagues laid out. First of all, I want to say something that I think is worthwhile to note. And that is that um, when we first started our program 16 years ago, Washington and UT Austin were two of the programs that we looked at to try to learn some lessons. And I think you continue to see this, that there are some front edge programs in the field right now that are continuing to learn from each other. And that number of programs is expanding. And in every case, you find strong relationships between the higher ed institution and the district and increasingly you're finding state supports as well. The thing that I would want to point to would be um, the fact that all of our students are required to engage in a full year, fully paid internship in our programs. This is something that of course, if you tried to take away from the medical profession, it would simply be a non-starter because the medical profession sees internship learning experience is absolutely critical. Um, in the field of school leader preparation, this is the exception rather than the rule to have such internship experiences. And we heard about the field experiences from both Washington and UT Austin. Ours is a full year, fully paid internship um, that requires students to engage um, in change. So one of the things I want to emphasize here is that curricularly our program does emphasize instructional leadership. We have a whole strand of courses throughout the program that emphasizes instructional leadership. But we also have a strand of courses that emphasizes organizational change. And the reason for this is that the kinds of principles we need, and we heard this echoed both in Anne's and Terrence's comments, the kind of principles we need are not simply instructional leaders. They have to be change agents. They have to be folks who can change institutions. They have to change the culture and the climate and the structures and the systems in their schools. Because if they don't do that, they won't get the fundamental changes in teacher practice that are necessary to really move student learning dramatically. So um, one of the ways that we accomplish this is not only by having a full year, fully paid internship required of all of our students in order to get certified with the state endorsement to be school leaders, but we also continue for three years of leadership coaching after they receive the endorsement. So 
this is a pretty elaborate commitment on our part, but it's also a commitment on the part of the school districts that we work with. So what we see then is 18 months to get the endorsement to, to learn to lead. And then well over 90% of our candidates after they get the endorsement for, for the last 15 years have become either principals or assistant principals. Um, and then we coach them in those roles around issues of organizational change. What kinds of changes need to be brought about in this school so that, in fact, teachers are supported in their own learning so that students are better supported in their learning? If we don't fundamentally change teacher practice, we will not get significantly different outcomes in student learning, particularly for low-income kids of all ethnic backgrounds. But the way in which we get significant changes in teacher practice um, has to involve school structures and routines changing because we can't simply write a memo to teachers to have them change their practice, nor can we just send them to some professional development. Adult learning has to be a part of the fabric and the DNA of the school. And when adult learning is part of the actual structure and operation of the school, so that teachers are learning every day how to improve their practice by working together in teams, teams that are led by teachers, all of these are organizational challenges to the school leader. And all of these go well beyond instructional leadership into organizational change agency. And this is something that remains a challenge to higher ed because higher ed is learning how to create change agents in schools when many of us in higher ed do not have much, much formal training in change agency ourselves. Now that's a very, very good point. And it, um, it just strikes me too, listening to the three of you, um, of how incredibly complex the job of the school leader is. And um, which gets at Terrence's original point of how kind of the, the work that preparation programs did in the past of developing technical skills is just not sufficient anymore. Um, and with that, I'd like to, to kind of shift to, to a, a, an, another question and it gets at something also that Steve said that none of us are where we want to be. Um, so you all have worked in programs that have kind of historically had a reputation of um, kind of being trendsetters within the field of really doing high quality work. And I'm curious to know what it is that you're doing um, different today than you did, Steve, 16 years ago, you know, and since you've come to the University of Washington, Terrence, you at UT Austin, and why you're doing these different things. You know, what, what evidence are you using that you're basing these program changes on? You know, is it evidence in the field? Is it, is it research? You know, what, what is it that you're, you're looking at when you're engaging in these types of changes? And let's start with you. Um, thank you. Uh, so I'd say um, one of the big shifts that we saw in the program that goes along with some things that you've already heard from, from Steve and Terrence as well is this idea of what is instructional leadership and how do you really practice instructional leadership. It isn't just the leader who's practicing instructional leadership. It's building that, we call it building instructional capacity. So how are you building capacity with the teachers? Um, how are you building capacity um, utilizing student and family voice? You know, how, how are you really engaging with your entire community around this idea that learning is going to um, take, uh, it's, the, it's the priority, learning, deep learning, 
critical thinking, problem solving, high cognitive demand learning is what is needed for each and every child in a building, not just for some children. Um, and so how do you, how do you work towards that um, as a leader? and build in the systems that are needed for that. So I'd say one of the big shifts that we've had here is uh, kind of interesting. I came into University of Washington right at the same time that the state was adopting a new teacher and principal evaluation system, which is based on a growth mindset, which is fantastic. And what we wanted to really see is um, from, from our leaders as they were moving through is that they would have that ability to have to have those um, those individual one-on-one -on -one conversations that helps people to really reflect on and shift their practice personally, but then also how do they do um, how do they work collectively with um, with teams of adults to to replicate what a team needs to be doing, not just what the individuals within the team needs to be doing, um, which brings it to that systems level. And one of the things that we've, that we've instituted along with um, Annika Markold, who is um, one of our instructors, she also works for the Center for Ed Leadership, and, um, and Karen uh, Jones, who's, a, who's the principal of Chinook Middle School in Highline, is that we've been working with Karen now for the last four years to conduct our classes, um, several of our classes each um, year are conducted at her school site with her. And um, what this does is it gives our students an opportunity for um, live practice. Um, we, are, we are walking alongside a principal. We are going through um, what, she's, uh, what she is most interested in in terms of problems of practice within her school. Um, we, we have, um, have an ongoing engagement with her that begins in August when she comes to talk with the students about her school. They've had an opportunity to examine the data. Um, every piece of data um, resource that she will make available to us when she makes available plenty. So they have that opportunity not only to look at their own internship site, but also to look at this other school through the lens of a, of a really effective leader who's, um, who is connected to that learning focus, who has really shifted um, both the culture and the climate at her school. Uh, which serves um, highly impacted population of students. And so um, we've been able to see through, through her lens and through this, this ongoing engagement with her school, the changes that she's been able to put in over time. And really, um, she's, she's a very vulnerable, transparent leader. She's, she's willing to, um, to really share you know, what's working well, what is she still working on as well. And um, this idea of having a, a live practice um, setting to give students, I think it goes back to what Steve's talking about. This is this is beyond just an internship. This is a structured internship experiences um, that the collectively the whole um, cohort is experiencing at the same time. So we're really able to draw from that experience, much as you would if you were a med medical residency program, that you would have people who are working together um, at a at a single um, site to learn from each other. So that has been. Um, that has really helped us with our students in terms of they see a leader and what the leader is doing. Um, we, we get all the way to the point where we've, um, we've watched a classroom, uh, we, we watch a pre-conference, we watch a classroom um, observation uh, that's happening, and then we, uh, we fishbowl the, the post-conference with the teacher with Karen leading an authentic post-conference with the teacher. So they're seeing all of those aspects and how those go together. And then later, we're back at the school again looking at how um, professional development related to what we've been seeing in classes has been set up in terms of ongoing job embedded um, teacher-led professional development in small teams um, during their conference periods. So the students are getting a, a sense of what an individual leader's practice is and then what also has to happen at a school um, to change those um, teaching practices and to really get the teaching practices in line with um, what student learning needs are. 
Super. And um, so that's really, really helpful in terms of really thinking expansively about the types of data that can be available to programs as, as they're thinking about whether or not their candidates are achieving, what it is that they're hope that they're achieving. And I'm, um, I'm curious to know then, Anne, how you and your colleagues use that data um, for what you called a little while ago, um, um, continuous program renewal. Mm -hmm. So um, we, uh, we have a couple of different methods that we do. One, um, after, at the end of um, most of our classes, the instructor will ask students for feedback live in the moment, either, um, either verbally or through an exit ticket of how did, this, how did this class support your learning. So we have an opportunity in the moment to gather information from students. We also do course instructor surveys, which are a little different than what the university typically does because we're a module program. So our students um, answer um, you know, questions about each of the learning modules related to the learning objectives of that module. Not just did you have a nice time in the class, but how well did the class push you to learn these aspects of leadership? Um, and then we're also, we, we take a look at student learning products um, that they are turning into us um, to determine whether or not we are getting them to the level that we want them to be at. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, we, we, we are all about evidence-based um, observation data, but what we were finding in some of our student learning products is there were still too many of these um, qualitative attaboys, way to goes, that was super awesome, or I didn't like that. <laughs> so being able to use that student, um, those student learning products from our students, our graduate students, to be able to say, what are we doing about evidence-based um, feedback and observation and, and really getting this into, um, into the, uh, the realm that we need students to be, so that, it's, that, uh, that they're giving a teacher data to reflect on, rather than telling them whether or not they thought that they were doing a, a good job. So moving away from that evaluative interpretation. So, um, so those, those types of things are the, are the pieces that we've put in place. And then we also, um, we've had a couple of different opportunities to talk with our district partners and find out from our district partners how are our people doing. We're not as, we're not where we want to be with that. Those conversations um, are, are at the conversation level right now, but um, because we have district partners who work with us on our curriculum materials, on our internship expectations, um, because they're, they're engaging with us on that, we're also finding out um, where is it that people need more support once they're out in the field. Thank you very much. Um, so Terrence, tell us about your program at UT Austin. What's changed and why, and, and what's the role of evidence? So UT Austin, so we've been, um, We've been training and preparing school leaders for over 70 years. So UT Austin has been engaged in this work uh, longer than I've been alive. But so there's a lot of history and a lot of great things that have happened here. And Michelle, Mark Gooden, who was the, the previous director uh, prior to my arrival. And I, I do want to say I really admire what's happening at both of your programs. I'm just taking down notes of great learning that's that's occurring. But um, so we're in a uh kind of a state of transition so our previous director uh went to an, another institution which created i think uh an opportunity an opportunity for us to kind of reimagine what our program could be and so um where we're currently now we're, we're thinking what that could be and one of the things we're working on is we actually have a meeting in about another week and a half to redesign our curriculum again what, what we're finding at least from our alumni and even conversations with our district partners is that our graduates are solid when we talk about equity and social justice and anti-racist leadership. 
However, when they get into actual leadership positions, they're still, again, talking about that blend of the technical part. Um, that could be a little more robust. So we're finding that our, our graduates need a theory of implementation, right? So they have this anti-racist ideology, but they go into districts that are, that are very racist in their structures and the way that they've been set up. So how do you now implement this agenda? So we're having to go back and redesign our curriculum from what we're hearing from our district partners, what we're hearing from our alumni, uh, to create that synergy between the, the technical and the idea, ideological. So that's one thing that we're working on. Um, another thing is that um, Anne came out to visit us uh, this summer, and she, she talked about the modules that they have in redesigning our curriculum to make sure that what students are learning in their courses corresponds to what is actually occurring in schools, right? So I think there is this archaic model that in the first semester of your program, you take school law. That's great, but you know, are you taking school law at a time when arts are heavily happening in your, in your school? So are you taking you know, the SPED class when you have to be, or LPAC when you're having, right? So language, so thinking about the curriculum corresponding with what's occurring in schools. Another thing we're doing is we're trying to uh, re reaffirm our partnerships with some of our, our partners across the state. And Michelle and Ann, you did amazing work as well as Mark in establishing some of those relationships. So we've just submitted a grant um, to train leaders again with, with some districts uh, across the state. So we're excited about that. Uh, and then finally, we've just continuing to revisit our core values. Like what are, what, like, do we want our students to graduate being able to do and what are those core competencies. So we're excited about where we are. We're learning a lot from folks across the country and, and look forward to continuing to prepare school leaders. Yeah, that all sounds really exciting and um, some, some really terrific directions as well. I'm gonna follow up with you in, in a few moments about the, um, the partnerships that you've, that you've got in place. But um, for now, Steve, I wanted to, to turn this question to you. I understand that evidence-based practice is a key feature of your program content, and I assume this is true of your program planning as well? Yeah, I mean, the way you framed the question earlier, you know, what have we learned and what's different now? Mm -hmm. We often bring back some of our early graduates. I mean, we're, we're in, we have in our 16th cohort right now. And so cohorts one, two, three, four have produced principals and district leaders and superintendents and so on that we bring back to actually uh, uh, co-teach courses with us now. And they frequently comment that the program isn't the same program that they went through uh, 12 or 13 years ago. And, and they're right about that. And so a few things have, have, have caused those changes. Um, one of them is the literature is really growing and developing. I'll just take one area. We, we, Illinois has a P through 12 uh, principal endorsement. That is to say, when you're endorsed in Illinois, you are, as a principal, you're endorsed from preschool through grade 12. And um, this really creates a great deal of flexibility for school districts to hire um, the best possible talent for pre-K, uh, elementary schools, uh, secondary schools, and so on. And um, on the other hand, it puts a real burden on higher ed to make sure that our principals really are prepared across the board. Of the materials that we use, for example, in the early childhood components, course after course, I mean, whether it's a policy course, 
or an instructional leadership course or a literacy course or a mathematics course, you'll find early childhood content in that course very specifically. Um, and the literature in early childhood has exploded over the last uh, decade. So that virtually nothing that we now use in our programs in early in our program in early childhood development for principals uh, was available uh, for cohorts one, two, three, and four. So course content changes over time. That's one thing. Secondly, we're very intentional about asking the question: Are we having the impact that our program is supposed to have on schools? And this is something as simple as what percentage of our graduates actually are becoming principals. If that percentage isn't extremely high, I mean, 75%, for example, it, it leads us to ask, why not? Um, if, if over 90% of our people aren't taking principalships and assistant principals within a year or two after the completion of the residency, why not? And so one of the, we, we collect intentionally and systematically data on what is happening to our candidates after they leave us. The next question is, okay, if they are getting principalships and assistant principalships, are they staying? What does their retention level look like? Are they retained at a higher rate than the national average? Are they retained higher rate than the state and the district average? Are we providing real value added? Can we justify the investment we're making in these folks on grounds that A, they are getting principalships and B, they are keeping those positions and then finally, of course, what impact are they having on student learning in those schools? And so what we do is we do an evaluate, we do ongoing evaluations of every metric that we can possibly collect. Now, fortunately, Chicago is a data-rich um, education environment. So Chicago keeps and makes public data on student attendance, on test score growth over time in its schools. And we're able to not only use Chicago's data, but generate data of our own to ask the question, are our, are our principals producing student learning outcomes at any higher level than the district is already producing? Now, this is challenging because I'm very pleased to say that Chicago public schools, for example, in test scores and, and um, the, the uh, Ed Trust uh, podcast on extraordinary districts brought this out very clearly. Chicago public schools over the last decade, in fact, since No Child Left Behind, has outperformed every other large school district in the state of Illinois in terms of student gain scores over that time. And Sean Reardon's data from Stanford show us that our grades three through eight students have outperformed um, the next 100 largest districts in the country. So this is a district that's actually on a real upward trajectory that's really significant. Um, and what we want to see is that our principals are actually producing better outcomes on average than the district is producing. We want to be at the front edge of the district, so we're constantly measuring that. Now, that takes us to the heart of your question. On the basis of what we find, how are we improving our program? So the consequence of this, of collecting this data, is uh, it causes us to go deeper on those data at any given moment. We're in danger of over-surveying our principals, for example. We'll ask them, we'll send out a survey to them and say, look, the following elements of, of expertise in early childhood seem to be critical to school leadership in early childhood. To what extent do you, how would you rate yourself on all of these elements? And that tells us whether our program in the principal's eyes is actually doing a good job in that particular domain. Or here's another one that Terrence raised. We began to suspect that our principals were not as strong in matters of working on race equity and community relations 
engaged in, in, in diverse communities as we would like them to be. We surveyed that to find that out. How strong do you feel you really are in working with um, community organizations and families in, uh, in neighborhoods, for example, that are virtually 100% African American? And what we got back tells us that we're not where we need to be uh, in, that, in that way. So not only are we, are we growing and changing because the literature is growing and changing, and not only because our data on our principal performance tells us places we need to get better, but also because we ask at any given moment, we have 50 to 60 principals in Chicago public schools who can tell us where they're strong, where they're weak, and that causes us as a program to, uh, to work with this in, in our routines of collaboration uh, so that faculty and leadership coaches together uh, are making an effort to improve the program in ways they're going to show up in terms of principal performance outcomes out in the field. You know, it strikes me that, um, as you were talking, Steve, that UIC is a bit of an outlier here. Um, many programs have difficulty, number one, getting access to the kind of data you were just describing, but then also using that data. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what, what is it that you see that makes UIC different? I think that um, it, it's, a, it's, it's multiple things, right? I mean, so, I mean, this, this would be a long conversation and, and I should try my best to keep this short. Um, but I think from the beginning, we, we based our program on a question rather than an answer. The question, since we already knew that really outstanding principles could dramatically improve student learning outcomes in even the most under-resourced neighborhoods, we started our program with the following question. What would it take to routinely produce principles who could demonstrate um, strong student learning outcome improvement? in urban neighborhoods regardless of ethnicity and regardless of, of the income bracket. And because we started with a question, it forced us to collect data to answer that question. It forced us to say, well, are we answering our question or not? How are our principals doing in these neighborhoods? Are they doing equally well in all neighborhoods? Um, what percent of our principals are really uh, improving student learning outcomes and what percent are not? So I think the fact that we started with this inquiry orientation, and we also had faculty and leadership coaches who were really committed to, to continuous improvement, a theme that came up early in the conversation. And um, I think that we've kept that commitment from start to finish. As Tony Brike and Luis Gomez are pointing out in their recent book, Learning to Improve, How America's Schools Can Get Better at Getting Better. If you're serious about improvement, you have to be serious about collecting the data to, to, to actually find out whether you're improving or not. And I think the fact that we started with a question instead of starting with an answer, and it's a question that continues to drive us today because we're, again, we're not there yet, right? Not 100% of our principals are actually improving student learning outcomes in the way that we aspire to. We're continuing to collect data to try to figure out how do we do better so that these principals across the board are producing the results that, that we know the children are capable of producing if we as adults create the right conditions for children to learn well. So asking the question, collecting the data, and then looking at it longitudinally and making changes as, as needed. Yeah, thank you. Um, and 
I understand that you and other faculty across the state of Washington have been working with the state to gain access to more and better data um, on your programs. Can you tell us a little bit about this effort? Yeah, so our, um, our, our state, um, state of Washington is moving away from a, um, an old five-year review model in which you had to post, um, gosh, the latest round, I think we posted over a thousand documents for an external team to come and look at, um, and then they asked for more documents. Um, but it was a two, three-day site visit to, um, to determine whether or not we were adhering to all of the state standards um, for programs, you know, not just our curriculum standards, but also standards around partnerships and standards around, um, you know, what is our program designed to do and, and how are we, you know, how are we delivering that program? We're moving to um, an indicator-based uh, model now for program review. And um, through that model, uh, we are working with the state on selecting what are some indicators uh, that would demonstrate that a program um, is, is um, you know, healthy, but also what are some indicators that could help us um, look for areas for program improvement. And so using that data in both directions, you know, not just to say, is this program doing what it's supposed to be doing from the state's perspective, but then also how am I as a program doing compared to my peers? And so what some of that data is, is coming back to us right now, um, we've been, we've been in, involved in these efforts for a couple of years, um, but this year was the first year that we started seeing our data as compared to other programs. Right now that data is still masked as in, I know what my program data is, I know what other programs data is, but I don't know which programs are which, you know, other than my own. Um, but we are moving towards um, that, both as a state organization, we have an organization on the Washington Council for Education Administration Programs, um, that's about 18 university preparation programs in the state who have voluntarily come together as, a con as its own collective consortium. We meet about four times a year, but we've been working with the state on developing um, this plan and one of the things that we're looking at it that goes along with some of the pieces that Steve was talking about so I've always been able to tell you how many of my students moved from my program into assistant principal and principal positions we've seen that rise over the last several years from about 70% every um, over two years entering those positions to about 90% within first two months entering into those positions um, but then um, and and the retention rates I could tell you what our retention rates were in those in those positions as well how long did our people stay in there but now I'm actually able to look at our program as compared to other programs um, so I can see whether or not our students are entering in at the same rate or you know at a, a at a greater or lesser rate than some of the comparable programs and um, and what that's going to do for us as a state organization of you know our WSIP members is that um, as I'm looking for ways to improve my program I now can identify um, you know program peers to say you're doing something I think different than we are because your data is looking different than ours is. Um, so what can I do to learn from you about how how you're um, you know how you're putting these pieces into place? Some of the other um, pieces that the state is trying to look at right now is um, we do exit surveys. I think a lot of people use the UCEA Inspire survey. Um, we do um, use that survey with our graduates. Um, where they give us data um, about a year out of the program to tell us how well prepared that they have felt that the, you know, how well did the program prepare them in particular areas. Um, the state is considering a statewide metric so that we again can start looking for who are the programs whose, you know, graduates are rating them the highest in instructional leadership, 
who, which are the programs that are being rated the highest in being able to um, conduct critical conversations around race, and then learning from those programs based on those data sets. So um, the state's in the process of, of making some formal plans, um, finalized plans in those areas, um, but we appreciate that members of our WESUP community have been really um, involved in that. And, and you too, Michelle, we brought you out a couple of years ago to talk with the state um, board about UCEA and the toolkit that you have worked on with New Leaders for New Schools. And so that, that also has influenced and has been part of the work for this new um, indicator-based system. Terrific. It, it really strikes me how important um, some of these statewide efforts have been. And um, I'm going to circle back around to that in just a moment. Um, but I wanted to have uh, Terrence give a, have a chance to address this question, particularly given, Terrence, the um, comment you made a few moments ago about this new statewide partnership project that, uh, that you're working on to have um, preparation partners in the large urban areas across the state of Texas. I'm curious to know what role evidence is going to play within these partnerships. Um, some districts are calling uh, the um, leader tracking systems, if you will, um, where they're collecting a number of pieces of data um, similar to the ones that Anne and Steve have both described. So tell us a little bit about how, that, um, how that's playing into your grant. So yeah, that's a great question. And real quickly, as I answer that, I think is what Steve and what Ann are saying is just so important in terms of having data on leaders post-graduation, but not just having data on them, but having supports and coaching for them. I think that's one of the greatest areas of improvement for our program to really assess what that impact has looked like. And so in our conversations to kind of uh, reboot our partnerships with large urban districts across the state, we've been having those conversations around, one, what are your needs in your districts? And we're finding that, you know, of course, they're unique needs across all these large urban districts. But then two, from your perspective, what indicators would be sufficient for you um, as we think about um, assessing the growth of our candidates throughout the program and even post-graduation. And so um, we're still in kind of like the earlier conver conversations on that. You know, the grant we just submitted uh, with the Texas Education uh, Agency, TEA, uh, for a principal prep grant with an urban district here. Um, you know, we looked at some, some, some lagging indicators. We looked at some of the traditional indicators in terms of retention, um, in terms of placement that was alluded to earlier. Um, and we're now starting to have those conversations even post the grant of what it will look like to support those folks after um, they finish. So um, we're still in the early stages of like the longitudinal part where I think we need to go. But what we talked about the grant were kind of like the traditional pieces uh, that both Steve and, and, and Ann alluded to. Yeah, this is, this is kind of tricky territory. Um, they're kind of the, the Jury's out in terms of what indicators can really say about the preparation program, but I, th I think that the the strategy that um, Steve described of having this data longitudinally um, really increases our assurance around some of those some of those indicators. Um, 
You know, it's really interesting. Much of what we've talked about today has um, both the, the program features, the indicators of program effectiveness could, and, and in some cases has been leveraged through state policy. Um, but according to a review that UCA recently did, it was a 50 state review of um, program approval policies. We found that very few states have actually capitalized on their authority around program approval and um, not too many have put in place requirements for programs to have the types of features that some of you have described today. Um, but Illinois is an exception and um, Steve, I was just wondering if you might share with us um, when you think about the different policies that the state of Illinois has put into place, what really stands out to you as being particularly important um, and, and helpful for your program to be able to do a really good job in preparation? I think that um, probably the most important thing the state has done, um, I mean, the, 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 the question you're asking works both ways. It, one of them is, how has our program been able to help lead the state to new policies on the one hand? And the other is, how have the state's policies been valuable in terms of uh, supporting what we want to try to do with our program? And I think that you really were focusing on the second one. But I want to go back in answering this to uh, the discussion of continuous improvement. And I'll tell you why. Um, one of the things that our state has done that undoubtedly is going to improve student learning outcomes in, in schools in the state is it has mandated that school principal preparation programs shall be selective in their admissions processes. Now, right now, um, school leadership preparation in the United States is open admissions. Basically, any teacher who wants to get a, a leadership certificate in the U.S. can get one. If they can't get it from an institution in their own state, they can get it online. Um, and uh, Illinois took very seriously the idea that not everybody is cut out to be a school principal. And so part of what Illinois has mandated is that every single program in the state not only has to demonstrate that it is a working partnership, between higher ed institutions and, and public school districts, but it also has to demonstrate selectivity in its admissions processes. The reason this connects to the continuous improvement idea that you were talking about earlier is that what we've done is we've actually tracked every year um, which of our candidates get the highest ratings for admission and which of our candidates do not get the highest ratings but are still admitted and then how do those candidates perform out in the field once we've done that? So I'll say, because I know we're running short of time, that Illinois pushing for selectivity in programs has supported all institutions in the state in becoming more selective. But also this means that this gives us another data point to ask, are we really selecting the right people? Are the people who we select with the highest admission scores the same people who go out there and move the needle on student performance the most? And if not, what does that tell us about how we need to improve our selectivity processes? Yeah, clearly the issue of, of partnerships, full-time internships and selectivity are, are three really key um, levers that states really, really could um, take the ball and run with and, and make a, a significant impact in terms of improvement. Um, 
as, as you just mentioned, Steve, we, we are getting towards the end of our show. And I, I thought it might be helpful um, for you all just to have uh, a last opportunity to, um, to, to make a final comment, a very brief one. Um, but uh, really speak to the so what. You know, in, in Karen's um, introductory remarks, she said, um, she emphasized how important it is to have um, high quality leaders and you know what we should be doing about this so you know, why is that important why are you doing this hard work of improving your programs and you want to start um, so the question we began with was um, what uh, what do principals need to know and be able to do to deliver on equity um, for each and every student and uh, and that's why that's our why um, it isn't enough that people learn um, in our program. It isn't enough that they that they receive a principal certificate. What I want to know is that they are making a difference in the learning lives of students, um, because education is um, critically important to the learning lives of students. And so, what is it that our that our leaders are doing um, to um, positively impact student learning, and do that collaboratively, working with um, with students, families, and teachers in their communities? Thank you, Terrence. How about you? Why? Why are you doing this? Well, that is a great question. Um, but I, I think we do the work, at least me personally, and at UT, um, because we know empirically that school leaders matter and that they can make a difference and that we know the inequities in our schools are not deterministic, but rather they're opportunistic. They're opportunities to transform and to make the world more equitable. So that's why we engage in this work. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Steve, final word. Yeah, I, I certainly I'm coming from the same uh, corner of the universe as Terrence and Anna on this, but I'll say it a little differently. Um, we know that well-prepared school leaders can dramatically improve student learning outcomes, but at the same time, we know that most school leaders do not. Empirically, we know that most school leaders do not affect the socioeconomic status determinants of student learning outcomes. And as Terrence is saying, these do not have to be determinants if school leaders really know what they're doing. And the consequence of that then is it reminds us that we will not get the student learning outcomes that students are capable of unless we put the school leaders in place who can create the conditions for learning that really good school leaders know how to create. Powerful ending. Thank you all so much for sharing your experiences and your and your thoughts with us today. And Karen, thank you. And to a thank you to the Ed Trust for hosting this this conversation. And I um, very much enjoyed. Well, thank you, Michelle. And thank you, everybody. This has been just a fabulous conversation about how we can get more extraordinary leaders leading schools and districts that help all students learn, no matter what their background. This is complicated work that has been undertaken by each of the people on this panel and the institutions they represent. If you want to learn more on the topic of leadership development, um, the Wallace Foundation at www.wallacefoundation.org has a lot of resources on leadership and leadership development, including videos on the UIC program. Keep posted. We're hoping to bring you more podcasts. This is Karen Chenoweth from Ed Trust. Thanks for listening.